This Week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast exploring hot topics and exciting advances in childhood cancer. TWIPO is produced by Solving Kids Cancer, nonprofits located in New York and London, dedicated to improving research and supporting families, because every kid deserves to grow up. Subscribe to TWIPO through your favorite podcast platform. Welcome to another episode of This Week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast or now videocast about hot topics and new advances in childhood can- cancer. I'm your host, Tim Kripe from Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, affiliated with The Ohio State University. Uh, and Solving Kids Cancer and I are excited to introduce a new format for our podcast series. As many of you may know, we've uh, recorded about 75 different episodes of a voice-only podcast on pediatric oncology over the last 10 years or so. And we've had lots of enthusiasm about those and they were well received. And so we appreciate all the listeners out there, but we thought in this era of COVID, when we're now Zoom aficionados, we might wanna change the format up a little bit and make it maybe more enjoyable, maybe more painful. uh, So you could watch us and and, uh, we can have a chit chat And so if you do have questions or topics that you want to suggest for future episodes, feel free to email us. Our our email is still active, twipo at solvingkidscancer.org. And um, you can watch these on uh, any of the podcast uh, venues. Uh, You can go to solvingkidscancer.org slash podcast or iTunes slash Apple Podcasts or Google, Google Play Podcasts, et cetera. But today, and in honor of September being Childhood Cancer Awareness Month. Uh, We are launching our newly rejuvenated series with Doug Hawkins, the new chair of the Children's Oncology Group, voted in after a national election before a pandemic. Uh, He didn't necessarily know what he was signing up for at the time, I think, Uh, but he joins us today from Seattle to talk about the future of childhood cancer research through the eyes of COG. So Doug, welcome and thank you for joining us. Well, thank you, Tim, for the invitation to uh, speak uh, with you and to the, the podcast crew. Um, it is a pretty exciting time. You know, this is, I didn't have any idea how unpredictable and exciting this would be. Uh, I ended up starting my role about nine months early and just at the start of a, uh, a pandemic. And it certainly has uh, you know, diverted my attention uh, dramatically from what I thought I would be doing. You know, this is a really great time to be in pediatric cancer research. You know, we um, we're just seeing the full implementation of the Race for Children Act, which I think is really going to change the game and, and, and uh, provide a powerful incentive to, uh, to uh, pharma to partner with pediatric oncologists to make sure that we have the opportunity to test uh, some of these new and exciting targeted agents for children as early as possible. Um, I think that's going to really help um, uh, energize our, our new agent development program. You know, we're all very proud as pediatric oncologists of what has been achieved over the last 30 to 40 years, seeing the five-year survival rates for childhood cancer overall, uh, now over 80%. But the story behind that, I think, is, is maybe more sobering. You know, five-year survival rate is not 20-year survival rate, and we still will see children die from their cancer beyond five years. And we also see children who will die from the side effects of their treatment. And the 80 year, 80% survival rate is an average, you know, and there are many diseases for which the survival rate is nowhere close to 80%. So I think that that's something we should be proud of, but it still gives us a strong mission that um, we need to see the day where we can offer that kind of cure rate to all children with cancer, not just selected cancers. And we need to be working on the day 
where we can see survival rates be very long-term survival rates and survival without the long-term burden of care from the treatment that we give, whether it's chemotherapy, radiation, the surgery, we need to let's see the day where the, the survival is a, a healthy survival. So I think you know, even in 2020 with those numbers, the COG still has a powerful mission to improve outcomes, both the cancer survival as well as uh, reducing the long-term side effects of our treatment. Uh, those are all great points. Let's unpack a few of them a little bit. Let's start with the, the genomic era and the Race for a Cure Act. Can you just briefly describe, in case people aren't aware, what that Race Act means and, and how it's gonna change what we do through COG? Yeah, well, there are multiple components, but one part is a modernization of the, the rules for uh, approval of new agents uh, by the FDA. And one component um, includes um, uh, the, the requirement that you can't, that you have to do meaningful research in pediatric cancer um, if there's any molecular rationale for studying a drug in children. So in the past, um, uh, a drug company could go to the FDA and say, I want an approval for lung cancer, Lung cancer doesn't occur in children, therefore I want a waiver for studying this drug in children. And that was allowed, but now if you have a drug that targets a pathway that's present in some pediatric malignancies, uh, you won't get a waiver anymore. You'll, still, you'll need to study that drug in children because that pathway is relevant in pediatric cancer, not just in lung cancer, but other cancers in children. So that provides a powerful incentive um, that also aligns in some ways with some of the regulations in Europe a powerful incentive to encourage pharmaceutical companies to study their new agents in children. And that, I think, gives us a, a leg up. We'll be able to start, uh, be able to do these sorts of studies in pediatric cancer earlier than we might otherwise. So it seems like an exciting new era, but I would imagine there could be some challenges. For example, uh, the numbers of patients that are eligible for a specific targeted agent is going to be shrinking because you have to have that specific target and uh, we might have more and more studies with fewer or, or few patients, fortunately. Um, how do we manage lots of studies and very few numbers of patients? Well, with every opportunity, there are challenges. And I think you, out, you laid them out already. You know, many of these targeted agents will be relevant to 1% of a rare tumor type. And so finding that, that rare tumor type is going to be hard. Uh, this is going to really push our ability to do clinical trials, and it will actually force us to think about global trials. You know, for some um, molecularly defined cohorts, our only hope to study them will be in collaboration with our partners in Europe. And so I think that actually is a, is a good thing. It's going to force us to think more uh, broadly, but it's going to raise some real regulatory uh, issues for us. And then, you know, many drugs, um, there may be multiple drugs in the same class, and they, it won't be possible to study three or four drugs that are in the same drug class. We're gonna to have to pick and choose which ones are gonna be relevant and possible to study in, in pediatrics. And that's gonna require some uh, cooperation and prioritization uh, amongst agents to know uh, which one is the best in class to bring into a pediatric study if you can only study one of a drug in a certain class. What kinds of data will you be looking for to prioritize in animal data, adult data, other Cases. Yeah, it will be multiple things. You know, these uh, even, you know, sometimes it'll be something as simple as do we have a pediatric friendly formulation? If you have a liquid, if you have a, a, an oral medication that's only available in tablets and you're trying to study young children, that may not be possible. So liquid formulations would be a, provide a leg up. There may be opportunities to compare drugs within class and see whether there is a, a selective advantage or there may be a toxicity advantage. Um, some of this may come out of preclinical testing. Some of it may only come out of early phase testing. 
What about the trial designs? I know there's some innovative trial designs out there nowadays, master protocols, adaptive platforms, basket trials, umbrella trials. Do you think that the use of those innovative designs will help prioritize? Yeah. Yeah, so we've gotten some experience already with the pediatric match. So that was a, a study that's been incredibly popular. Um, we've been rolled at a very high rate. Uh, it's open to children who have recurrent solid tumors. And uh, the requirement is they have to have a sample taken at recurrence that is tested. And then based on the predefined set of molecular features, uh, patients can be identified as being a match to a certain sub-protocol, treatment protocol. And that combination of molecular testing available to anyone who enrolls in the study and um, access to an agent that's targeted to the to the matched alteration. I think it's been very popular. This has been agnostic to the histology. So it doesn't matter whether somebody has um, a, a sarcoma or neuroblastoma, um, a renal tumor, if they have a selected a specific molecular alteration, they can be made eligible to the pediatric match. And so I think we've learned a lot uh, from that type of study, things that work well, things that don't work well. The next generation will be looking at combinations. You know, the pediatric match was a single agent targeting a single molecular alteration. And we know that that is unlikely to cure many patients. Um, so the next generation is what's called combo match. And we're gonna do this in partnership with the other um, adult NCTN organizations where we're gonna be looking at com rationally designed combinations of drugs, uh, mostly targeted agents based on the pattern of alteration. So that will be our next opportunity to again, get past a histology-specific clinical trial and move into molecularly targeted therapy. And what about incorporating those targeted agents with not just other targeted agents, but chemo or, or other standard therapies? Is, is that a priority or, you know, ultimately we'd love to get rid of chemo? And, and yeah, all yeah. Well, I think there's two ways to look at that. One is the, in the case where our outcome is in inadequate and there, that's a case where adding in uh, targeted therapy to standard chemotherapy has got to be a priority. It, that raises a whole host of challenges of, because, you know, these targeted therapies have their own sets of toxicities that when you add them to, to targeted or to um, classic chemotherapy is going to, will have additional side effects. Um, but there are ways, you know, we will have to do studies. If we have a well-defined historic control, we may be able to get away with a non-randomized study. Otherwise we'll have to do randomized studies. And that may also require global collaboration to get those done. Um, but then the flip side are the tumors where we have very good outcomes, and Hodgkin lymphoma may be a great example of that, where the survival rates are very high, but the long-term burden of our therapy is, is, too, is really unacceptably high. That will be an example of where bringing in a targeted agent to reduce the morbidity of treatment, to try to reduce some of the, the, uh, the standard chemotherapies, and probably the great examples of that are, are some of the... Um, uh, the PD-1 um, uh, immuno-oncology drugs, where we have a high level of single agent activity. We know about combinations. Now is the time to bring those agents into the front line with the hope of trying to take away, back away from the, the very toxic um, standard chemotherapy. How about this sort of paradigm that we've always lived by of trying these new agents in relapse patients who may not be the best ones to do that and uh, are ability to move things up front and see signals that we might otherwise be missing. Is that also on sort of your mind? Yeah. Well, I think we're, we're, we're going to have to get past that because we, we may have discarded agents that uh, would have been effective had we been able to use them in patients who hadn't um, already accumulated a lot of damage from their frontline treatment. Um, and I, I think if we look at risk, uh, there are certainly groups of patients who have tumors where the survival rate is similar to the survival rate of a patient with recurrent cancer. 
and the risk from their perspective of a novel therapy and frontline therapy is no different than the risk of giving it the, that they might think of if they receive it at relapse. And so the idea of bringing up bringing these agents into frontline therapy, I think has, has gotta be important. And we may see different findings. We may see activity in frontline therapy that is not seen at relapse. And some examples of that include uh, on our neuroblastoma study, bringing prosotinib into the frontline therapy for patients who have alcohol alterations in their neuroblastoma. It's a selected group of children with neuroblastoma who, of patients for whom outcome still remains inadequately um, too low. But that's an example of bringing a frontline targeted agent into, into therapy in combination with chemotherapy. That's great. Now you alluded to several times the need for global collaboration and you've had a lot of experience with that. What do you see as some of the challenges and ways around those challenges and which groups do you think we're gonna be working with the most? Yeah, the list is long of challenges. Um, you know, I think the, the, it starts with trust, to be honest. You know. Uh, People want to believe that they're not going to be scooped, that they're going to get credit for working together. And I think the first thing of any successful international collaborations is bringing a group of people who trust each other, who are willing to work collaboratively. Um, that's the first barrier. And, and I, that's, that's not scientific. There's nothing molecular about that. But I think if you don't have trust, you just don't get past that. I think the next thing is, is coming to some shared understanding of what, the, what are the most pressing questions that we're willing to devote you know, maybe a decade of our life to asking. And if we are, have alignment on what the most pressing questions are, then you can see your way through all the forest of regulatory barriers that prevent you from getting to the, to the finish line of having a global study. I think in some cases, having a pharmaceutical partner helps us because um, pharma can, as the sponsor can allow, can provide oversight in multiple countries. Um, there's strong incentives um, given the need to get approvals both in by the EMA and the FDA for uh, uh, global sponsorship by pharma. Um, there's also uh, models where we have coordinating centers that um, allow us to simplify the monitoring of studies in one continent and the data collection in one continent and the funneling data through a single coordinating center that, that can simplify an otherwise very daunting process of collecting data from multiple centers. So I think it's, that's, an, that's an easy, and a, <laughs> a very brief overview of how we could do it. And I, I think it's, this is gonna be challenging, but the fact is there are some cohorts of patients, some molecularly defined cohorts of patients that the only hope for study, the only hope for progress is, is global collaboration. And how do we do with tissue samples in those studies? And does it all have to be done at local labs or can we still send them internationally? And how much complicated does that make things? Uh, well, it certainly makes it very complicated. You know, fortunately, COG, we've been up within our network of COG, we can receive samples with some difficulty due to shipping from international sites that happen to be members of COG. You know, COG has members in Australia, New Zealand, uh, Canada and a site in uh, Saudi Arabia. So, you know, we've been able to get around that, but it's not easy. Sometimes there are barriers to shipping, just something as simple as like maintaining the temperature uh, when you're shipping across multiple time zones. Um, I think, you know, even if we can't ship samples across international borders, we can agree about how we're going to analyze the samples. And that's true for Tumor samples is true for data. How you're going to analyze it such that at the end of the day you can compare apples to apples. And I, I think the most successful research collaborations is when we agree to a platform ahead of time, where we agree these are the, the molecular features we're going to we're going to um, each assay such that at the end of the day we can merge our data, even if we've done the assays in different continents. 
How do you think that COVID has affected the progress of all these things, especially international collaborations? Well, it certainly hasn't made it easier. Um, you know, I when things first started getting dark, you know, when when the there were cities that were being hard hit. Seattle was hard hit early in the pandemic. I was really worried about how anything was going to continue. And it's obviously our world, our society has been transformed by this, and we're we're not out of it yet. Um, but the surprising thing to me has has been that we, there was a dip down in enrollments and COG studies early in, in March. But in the last couple of weeks, the last through most of the summer, we're enrolling more children on COG therapeutic studies than we were doing in January and February. Now, that's shocking. Uh, and actually, that's not been seen with all the adult cooperative groups. They're still down below their, their baseline rate. But I, I think what that says, it says something about the level of commitment of pediatric oncologists and the people who do pediatric cancer research to uh, progress. Now, we realize that our studies are the way that we're going to make progress. And even in the face of a pandemic and all the restrictions that is placed on our medical systems, we're still enrolling children on our clinical trials. Now, our biology studies, our non-therapeutic studies, that went down and hasn't quite recovered to our rate that we are seeing in, in January and February, but it's not that much lower. It's about 85 to 90 percent of what we are seeing in January and February. So, you know, even in the face of pandemic, children are still being diagnosed with cancer. We still have a need to make progress. And for whatever reason, the commitment of the COG membership around the world have allowed us to keep uh, doing our studies despite all the restrictions that the pandemic has put on our medical systems and on our society. Oh, that's great news. Well, I'm curious about what your experience has been running COG now since March uh, in terms of, is it, I think it was advertised as gonna be an 80% FTE, so is it 250%? And, <laughs> and uh, what, what have been your personal challenges um, and do you have plans to make many changes within either the structure or the operations or, you know, logistics. What, I mean, I know it was running well, although some might say it takes too long, et cetera, and is like a big ship that you have to turn, but what are some of the things you're thinking about that, that either need to change or you, what's your vision? Yeah. Well, I, um, you know, I, I did anticipate this would be an 80% job and it's been 80%. I won't tell you what 80% number of hours, but it's, uh, it's been an 80% job. In some ways, my, my life has gotten less chaotic because almost everything I do is related to COG. Before I was the drug, drug lane being a division chief and my own research interests and hospital priorities and then other things I was doing. And now it's pretty much mostly almost all COG with the exception of some clinical care. Um, so in many ways, my life is less chaotic. Um, I'm reflecting on, I was about a week or two into the job, and my wife looked at me, and she said, you know, you seem oddly energized by all of this. And this is, all, all of this stuff was happening around me, just as the pandemic was taking off. And she's right, you know, I, I'm, I'm passionately committed to the mission of COG. I really think that the progress that we have seen in treating pediatric cancer over the last three to four decades is entirely due to cooperative group research. And the hope for future progress is going to be to the work that we do within the cooperative group. So I, I'm just passionately committed to this. And for me, the opportunity to be at the, at the helm of these of incredibly talented committees and investigators all around the world, to have, to have the chance to speak for them, to advocate for resources for them is, is really exciting. I um, had not planned to actually do anything until January. That's when I was supposed to take over the job, January 2021. So um, I'm looking at this nine months as just my tread water time. 
but it's really clear to me that, that we're going to have to take advantage of some opportunities. We had, we, have to, we had to pivot in how we did our operations due to COVID um, with everyone working remotely. Uh, we've had one thing I've been focusing on is how can we take advantage of some of the resources that will be available through the Childhood Cancer Data Initiative or CCDI. That to me is that's a great opportunity that we have with um, with federally committed funds to support the mission of CO, uh, of pediatric cancer, and I think COG should be at the at the, the center of, of that sort of support. But we're going to have to um, deliver on some of the requests of CCDI. We have to envision a world where we can share data more facilely. We have to think of how we can be um, more interactive and how um, we work with other groups around the world as well as other researchers in the cancer field. And that is a challenge, but I think it's something that COG simply has to do. You mentioned um, the slowness of COG. I mean, <laughs> the uniform comment that I got from people when I was talking about running for COG group chair is they said, well, I love COG, but it's too slow. And that's that's absolutely true. I mean, we, we get great work done, but we are we're not as fast as we can be. But some of this is the comes out of necessity. We, we are dependent on consensus. We need everybody to agree that this is the path we're going to go down. We need to satisfy all sorts of regulatory um, barriers and requirements in order to get studies open. And we want to make sure that our studies are as safe as possible. So yeah, it does take a while to, to get us up and going, get studies going. But if you want to answer a big question, like this adding lenitubumab to improve the outcome for children with relapsed ALL, COG is your only option. If you want to see if it's going to improve the outcome for frontline therapy or whether CAR T cells in the initial therapy uh, of children at very high risk for relapse of ALL, if you want to find out whether that is going to work, COG is the place to do it. We, we may be slow, but we get the answers. We're the, we can deliver hundreds or thousands of patients to answer these big questions. I wish we could make it faster. I, that's certainly going to be a priority for me is how can we become more nimble? But I think we're still going to have our focus on how can we answer these big questions that can be only be addressed by a consortium like COG. That was a great tagline for COG. We may be slow, but we get the answers. <laughs> right. That's right. <laughs> Do you think so? I'm just, you know, our time's about up. But um, besides sort of funding, you know, one of the things that the pediatric oncology community is a beneficiary of, unfortunately, in, in some ways, you know, there's a lot of foundations and parent groups because that have sprung mostly out of, you know, unfortunate experiences with their with children. Uh, but there's a power, powerful groups, obviously, that uh, changed federal laws, et cetera, and provided a lot of funding. We've all applied for many, and, and some of us are re fortunate enough to receive some funding from various groups. Uh, what other kind of value-added support or uh, help could the uh, nonprofit sector bring to COG activities? Yeah. Well, you know, I think I want to tread a little lightly here because I, you know, any uh, philanthropic organization is in, has had really hard time in the last few months. I mean, fundraising for any group, doesn't matter what your cause is, all worthy causes, including pediatric cancer, they have had, they have really suffered mightily under the current conditions because of the economic downturn, because of the inability to have mass events that many foundations that raise money for the cause of pediatric cancer. So I, and I, we need to support them through this really difficult time. I'm confident that the generosity of our society will allow us to continue to support foundations that support the mission of childhood cancer. But to, to address the issue of advocacy, you know, groups that, that help us raise, help us focus attention and maybe direct federal funding towards cancer. Um, I think those groups are absolutely essential. You know, the, 
the, the, the Race Act, the STAR Act, the, the, uh, the various uh, initiatives that really have put a focus on childhood cancer. You know, we, pediatric cancer is rare, which is a good thing, but we are, always have to compete with much more common cancers in adults. But the payoff of successful, of curing a child for cancer, the life of health that we can get, that's so important. And we need to make sure that because that's so important, that, that pediatric cancer always has a seat at the table, that there's always people at least ask the question, how can we um, um, tilt the, 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 uh, the table a little bit so that pediatric cancer gets its fair share of, of research. And I'm, we're so lucky to have advocates who advocate on, on the, the drug availability, drug shortages of um, getting access to novel agents as early as possible, making sure that there's the appropriate amount of federal funding. We're really lucky to have such a powerful advocacy group behind childhood cancer. Well, I think that's well put and a great way to wrap this up. And I appreciate your being here and helping us uh, reinvigorate September Childhood Cancer Awareness Month and research and advocacy and all the other things that go along with making sure that we can continue to make progress for our most vulnerable uh, of our society, our, our children, and especially those with cancer. So thank you for being here. Thanks for the invitation. And I'm going to end it with the tagline that I usually use on my podcast, which is, uh, we'll thank the Solving Kids Cancer team for their help in, in launching this new video cast. And remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas, and work together, the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. And as always, keep up the fight. And thanks for witching, listening and watching to This Week in Pediatric Oncology. We welcome your comments, questions, or thoughts on topics for future episodes. Just drop us a note at twipo at solvingkidscancer.org. You can follow Dr. Kripe on Twitter at kidsonkdoc and find all Twipo episodes at solvingkidscancer.org.